What's going on, everyone? I'm Paul, and welcome to Season 2 of the Loda High Podcast. As my first guest for the season opener, I interviewed Rutgers alum and current Redwoods lacrosse club attackman, Jules Henningberg. Jules and I spoke about his upbringing in lacrosse, how he became the player he is today, and much more. Make sure to go check out Jules' podcast that he co-hosts called Unbuckle Chinstrap, where he interviews the best players in the PLL. Make sure to go follow him on Instagram, at Jules Henningberg. Now, without further ado, let's get right into it. What's up, everyone? With me today on the season opener of the Loda High Pod is the Redwoods LC attackman and current podcaster like myself, Jules Henningberg. Jules, what's going on, man? Yeah, what's going on, man? How are we doing? Doing good, doing good. How's the, uh, how's the West Coast treating you? West Coast is great. I'm out here in San Diego. It's a beautiful day today. I went outside for uh, um, my lift earlier, went down to One Nine Fitness. That's where I usually work out. And I got one in, and now I'm back here chilling, getting the, uh, the rest of the day going. How long have you been out there for? So I've been in San Diego for two years, but I had a little bit of a stint in LA for six or seven months over the summer of, of 2019 PLL season into the fall. What do you like better, uh, San Diego or uh, Los Angeles? Definitely more of a San Diego guy. I, I like being here for kind of how the week's set up. I think Los Angeles is a little bit hectic, driving around to different spots and you know going to the grocery store, trying to get to the gym, things like that. But it's definitely nice up there to, to go out on the weekends and, you know, go to go to the beach and stuff. But I'm always able to go up there if I want to and kind of touch in with the people I know. Uh, but during the, my weekly routine, I'd rather be in a more slow paced San Diego. You miss the East Coast at all? I, I mean, sometimes I, I think I go back there enough that it's not, you know, not the end of the world. I think COVID's kind of messed that up a little bit, but I'm going back to New Jersey for winter, uh, not winter break, but, you know, two weeks in winter time around Christmas. And then uh, I'll head back there um, probably around May again after that. So what's the, uh, what do you think is the biggest uh, plus about moving out to the West coast instead of staying on the East coast? Definitely the weather is, is the biggest factor. I think as a lacrosse player and, uh, you know, professional player now, I, I really, you know, I've always invested my, in training um, over my career, but you know, now that, now that I'm older and I'm able to see that, you know, in New Jersey, it's much harder to find an indoor place during the wintertime. Um, you know, during the summertime, it's really hot outside where here it's consistent year round. And, and that gives me the ability to you know, always get out in the field without it being too stressful. And, you know, as, as well as coaching and, and doing stuff on the field um, with the, you know, the juke lab stuff that I do and the FCL stuff. Um, it's nice to have good weather year round for that. Do you think you being on the West coast, uh, kind of minimizes your connections to like all the lacrosse players on the East coast, you know, how you work with first class and you know how Deemer's out in Maryland and uh, all the other guys are over in Baltimore and New York. Do you think you're kind of missing out on that? Or do you think you're uh, you like it better that you almost have like your own hub of uh, lacrosse players to train with? No, I think it's very much relationships based. So if you can maintain those relationships and develop them, uh, with different touch points over the course of, you know, the year and, and then two years and those guys' careers that you're looking to work with and develop relationships with, it's fine. You know, if I was back in New Jersey, I'd, I'd probably be coaching at Seton Hall. Um, and, that, you know, so I'd know all the Seton Hall guys, but I wouldn't necessarily uh, be building relationships with the other guys in the other towns unless I really invested into that. Um, so I, I think it's just nice to be in San Diego, like I said, with the with the weather and, you know, I'm able to fly around the country with FCL and, and the Juke Lab and, you know, meet different players some from all over the country to start building relationships with. That's awesome. That's awesome. So uh, I think it was Paul uh, named you, Paul Rabel named you the, uh, 
the new host for season two of the uh, Unbuckled Chinstrap Pod. Uh, how do you feel about it? And how do you uh, how do you how have you adjusted to uh, almost being like the person that's asking the questions instead of uh, you trying to explain everything on podcast before? It's de- it's definitely different. I mean, you, you're a podcaster yourself, so you know um, it's it's not easy to kind of steer the conversation in the direction that you want it and it's very different for each person but overall I think it's been a great experience so far I think I've been growing each episode and and improving the third episode will be coming out this week and I'm excited so it's very excited for that one Uh, I felt like it was the best one um very more conversational I think that's the biggest thing you want to make it you know like a like a conversation less of just questioning someone back and forth and you know just having Paul be able to put me in the position to, uh, to be able to host a podcast. And I'm very grateful for that just because it's an opportunity for me to grow and, you know, grow my platform and my voice and, and the things that I believe are important and the conversations I want to have with players. Yeah. So you look, not like you looked out, but uh, you were fortunate. You had Paul on your first episode of the podcast and Paul's a great guy to do, like to have talk and commentary with. And I think in my first and second episode, I had Jake who uh, runs his own YouTube channel. So he's really familiar with it. And then I, had, I think, you know, Mitchell Pelkey, he was on, you, you were on his podcast, you know, he's a hilarious guy. He's a character. So yeah. having a guy like that is so beneficial to someone who's just starting out with it because they help flow the conversation. They know how, how this stuff works better than you do. And it just, it makes the conversation way more comfortable over, overall. Definitely. And it's, it's all, that's what it's all about. You want the flow of the conversation and someone, you know, that, that brings up things as the conversation goes outside of the things that potentially you wanted to even talk about. And that's when you're like, you just kind of get into that natural rhythm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So let's start off with a couple of basic questions. Uh, where are you from originally, Jules? Originally from Maplewood, New Jersey, back on the East coast. Uh, when did you start first getting into lacrosse? I first picked up a stick when I was seven years old in the second grade. Uh, what club teams did you play for when you were uh, growing up? I first played club lacrosse going into ninth grade for a trilogy lacrosse. And then after that, I played for a team called DeSico lacrosse um, for a year and a half. And then I played leading edge for, excuse me, my last two years of high school. All right. I'm going to throw you a little zinger right now. What are your top three favorite sport movies? Uh, number one, remember the Titans. Uh, number two, Glory Road. Number three, Miracle. Uh, when do you think the next best, uh, next big uh, lacrosse movie is going to come out besides uh, Crooked Arrows? I think, you know, I would assume someone, someone or something in the PLL would, yeah. you know, be creating that. They just came out with a book. I think they're ahead of the, you know, the curve with this kind of stuff. So potentially something, you know, in the PLL or you know, something with, uh, with a Lyle Thompson, someone like that, someone really high up in the game um, that's looking to, you know, make something that's really defining the sport and in, in the moments that we're in. Yeah. Um, uh, who were some of your favorite players growing up? Uh, I think my favorite player growing up was Billy Bitter. Um, he was a UNC attackman. Are you, are you familiar with Billy Bitter? Yeah, I know who Billy Bitter is. Yeah, he was, he was the... Uh, I had him as my Facebook profile picture when I was in eighth grade. And uh, it's so funny looking back on the young kids now and kind of seeing, you know, how they look up to players. I was like, well, that's, that's who I wanted to be um, when I got to college. Cause he was a dynamic ex attackman. He had a great change of direction. So I always try to emulate him and then steel Stanwick, uh, who's also a, you know, an ex attackman quarterback player had both hands. I felt like I always had both hands. 
uh, Rob Pinnell, not that I really emulated as many things as Rob, as Rob Pinnell, just because he's a different style of player than I am. But just, you know, watching him live at MetLife Stadium uh, was an unreal experience for me. I remember he had like six goals versus Princeton when I was there. And I was like, this is, you know, so cool. I want to be able to play at the highest level and, and be like that. So those are a couple of the guys that, uh, that I always looked up. To. I didn't really start looking into that stuff until um, seventh grade, like eighth grade, when I, my friends started talking about like Johns Hopkins in sixth grade. And I was like, what yeah. the hell is Johns Hopkins? I remember must've been like sixth or seventh grade. I had a photo of Matt Rambo and Colin Heacock uh, shoulder bumping each other as my Instagram profile page <laughs> for a good solid years until ninth grade. And then someone brought it up and then I had to change it. So I, I fully understand when the, when you said that about your Facebook page. So um, tell me a little bit about your high school career. Where'd you uh, originally start playing? So I originally started playing at Columbia high school in Maplewood. Are you familiar with uh, Columbia high school? No, no, I'm not. It's a, it's so Maplewood's a public school. I mean, Columbia high school is a public school in Maplewood. We have two towns that feed into Columbia. They were really good back in the day. So in, in the seventies, eighties, early nineties, and then early two thousands, they're, they're pretty good. They started to kind of teeter off a little bit late two thousands, uh, like 2008, 2009. And that's right when I was kind of getting into the um, program and it was just something around the town that it was like, who's going to come into Columbia and kind of, you know, change the culture and, and do a lot of, you know, a lot of that stuff, heavy lifting of the program that needed to be done for them to get back to where they'd been before. So that was something like the, my grade and the grade above me and the grade below me were always kind of, you know, thinking about and I'm talking about, it was like going to Columbia and changing the, changing the program, bringing it back to the old days. So that, that was like my mindset going in there. And I, I wanted to be the you know, best player that I could be and, and bring a state championship to Columbia again. So I went there my ninth grade year. The coach told me that no freshmen are allowed to play varsity, which that was that was tough for me to hear because I'd been playing with those guys on the varsity team and, um, you know, guys that were heading into the varsity year in the offseason since like sixth grade. And so I knew the level of player I was compared to those guys and, you know, what I could do with them when we'd play other competition. But then I wasn't able to try out for the team. So that was really hard for me. And I knew I could be contributing to that team and felt like we could have done better if I was out there. And then my sophomore year, I come back um, just from that. I felt like made a, a bit of a rift with the coach and I. Um, and, you know, I was uh, I was second on the team in points um, behind another one of our, our friends that was going to play Division One. We were eight and eight as the best record Columbia had and they still have had in the last 10 years. And um, I was just like the way that the coach was treating me and things that were happening with him. I was like, I'm not going to stay here if other guys in the program aren't investing the way that I am investing into it and believe that, you know, it can, it can really go in the trajectory of the program and with a coach that doesn't see the value in me as a player and a leader on the team. So I transferred to scene hall prep after that, and then transfer rules. I had to sit out for 30 days uh, for best, both basketball and lacrosse. So I sat out, we were two and eight when I started to play, which was now I'm like transferring into school where we're worse record than I was in my old school. And that was, you know, frustrating. And then we went on a 10 game winning streak. When I started playing, we, we beat Del Barton, who was number one in the country at the time. And then we made it to the state championship and uh, we lost to Don Bosco um, in the state championship, but that really good Don Bosco team in 2013. And then senior year came back, we were 16 and four, um, had a great, you know, great run senior year. And now Scene Hall is, uh, is one of the perennial powerhouses in the country. So it was uh, a little bit of up and down high school career, but I, I'm definitely grateful for the experiences I had in, in growing programs and 
you know, having a lot of different experiences through that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a word and tell me what the first thing comes to your mind is when I say it, uh, Del Barton. <laughs> I can't, I can't say the first word that comes to mind with them, but the enemy. So tell me a little bit about that game. I know it was a pretty thrilling game. It was the biggest upset in the country in a couple in recent history. So you mind going in depth about that game? Yeah, so we're, we're coming into that game. We, Del Barton and Seton Hall always go back and forth in terms of just it being a rivalry. They're the prep school that dominates lacrosse in, in New Jersey. And Seton Hall is usually one step behind them, two steps behind them, depending on Bergen Catholic, Don Bosco. So they're really in their, in a tier of their own, but always getting a run for their money from Seton Hall. So earlier that season, I wasn't playing and we lost them by one goal. And then in my head, I was like, well, if I was out there, I'd be occupying one of their best players, opening up, you know, more things for other guys in the field and being more of a presence behind the cage and just orchestrating. And I, I knew that if, if that was, if I was out there, that we would have won that game. So coming into that game, I was really, I was always confident, especially when we'd play teams like that, just because, I wanted to prove myself and, and prove that I you know, deserve to be in the conversation for one of the best players. And that was an opportunity to, to showcase that. So we came in and we went up uh, eight, I think it was eight zero. Um, and at halftime, it was like nine to nine to two. And then they came storming back and it was uh, ended up winning us 10, eight. So we only scored one goal in the second half. So we kind of started to play a little timid, I think in the second half, which, you know, I think that was kind of a, a downfall of our team a little bit, but, you know, not that it was a fluke, but definitely came out hot and, you know, being able to maintain that lead is important and, and keep hitting, hitting the other team with the punches. So I'm glad we, we escaped out of there with the victory, but, you know, in terms of it being one-sided, then being number one team in the country, us being two and eight and then coming back to storm back and then beating them is, is pretty cool experience. What was the uh, post-game locker room celebration like at uh, Seton Hall prep after that? There's, I, I think the post game, it wasn't, we didn't have locker room. So it's off to the side uh, with all the parents so just going to hug everyone. And I remember my dad wasn't at the game. So calling him and being like, we did it. We beat Del Barton. Like we're going to the state championship. Like, this is crazy. And then, uh, you know, get on the bus after with the guys um, was, was awesome. And just playing um, the song clarity. You know that song? Yeah. yeah. That was like our theme song for uh, going into that game and after that game. So it's pretty cool. That's really cool. So, um, what was your recruiting landscape uh, landscape like uh, during your uh, some years of high school? I got recruited. I started to get recruited actually when I was in 10th grade. So that fall. Um, and then after that, that was like my first, I remember coaches first saw me play at tournaments and my coach at the time, Andrew DeSico was mentioning to me, Hey, you know, go talk to this coach. He, you know, he's interested in you a little bit and you're, or the Princeton coach is talking about you over there. So then I was like, okay, like there, you know, there's something here. And then fast forward that next summer going into my junior year, that was when I thought that everyone was supposed to get recruited, but the cycle sped up a year for my class and then sped up another year after I graduated college uh, or high school, excuse me. So at that point it was rising freshman, but mine was rising sophomore. So all the quote unquote blue chip players were picked up. Uh, by the blue blood programs, the, the big 10, the ACCs when I was a rising sophomore. And like I said, that fall, I, I kind of put in a couple tournaments and, and heard some things, but then that summer was really when I went to get recruited and I started playing with leading edge. But at that point, all the verbals had really been filled up. So I really wanted to go to UNC. I wanted to be the next blood bidder. And, you know, they already, they committed two or three attackmen. So there's really no opportunity for me to go to that school. And, you know, as an attackman, you know, 
every class it's it's two or three spots. So if Maryland fills there too and Notre Dame there too and UNC there three, and it's you know it's twenty guys and you just missed the the boat because you didn't know to get recruited, now that's that's a tough position to be in or that's the position I was in um, and I felt like it was a tough position to be in at the time. Uh, and then you know I was uh, I was I think I was a good recruit on the on the circuit. I wasn't a standout recruit. I don't think my style really fits that, um, you know, electric, dynamic, bounce player. Um, all, that's just going to break everyone down from the midfield and shoot it on the run of 15 and, and, you know, just really stand out in the showcase environment. It was more just doing the right things, being in the right spots at the right time, making the best plays. It's, it's still the same way I play to this day. Um, and so I think I kind of, you know, wasn't good enough to stand out for those coaches to be like, hey, we're going to take you even though we already have three attackmen, um, but I was good enough for the, for the other teams to notice, Hey, this kid, this kid can play and maybe he's got some potential. We can do something with him. So I ended up getting recruited by a number of mid-major programs. And then I uh, ended up deciding between Rutgers, Navy and Delaware. And then I, uh, for me, it was big, the big thing was finances. I had to you know, pay for school or get a scholarship. So Navy was free. I was getting a scholarship with Delaware and it was, it was close. Um, to, to my family. And it was also, uh, I think it was $30,000 to go there and I could get a scholarship and then Rutgers was in state with a scholarship. So that's kind of uh, how it worked out. And then, you know, with Rutgers, it was very much come here with coach Brecht. And I believe you can change the culture of this program and, and change Rutgers trajectory. And so, you know, that's what something that I felt like I did at Seton Hall. And I, I had a lot of confidence that I could do um, at Rutgers as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think the, um, new recruiting uh, landscape now that you have to commit September 1st, your junior year would have helped you or uh, if, if it was happening when you were trying to get recruited? Yeah, definitely. I think it would have helped me a lot just because it would have given coaches the opportunity to see me as a sophomore and then also communicate with coaches um, that were knew who I was as a person and knew that, you know, knew my background and knew my character because that is a really important thing when it comes to recruiting in my opinion, the IQ of a player and his character are the two most pivotal things. And if, if you don't have those two, you know, you're really throwing, um, you know, paint at the wall and hoping that it, it, uh, it sticks because a player can be, and I've seen it time and time again, he could be the most talented player in the world, but if he doesn't understand, you know, academics or doesn't understand how, how to be a good teammate in the locker room or doesn't understand how to, you know, respect people on the weekend, like there's so many different things, you're never going to see his skills pan out. And um, I've seen that, like I said, so many times before. So I think coaches on, you know, college coaches now that could have talked to my high school coach and could learn, you know, me transferring to Seton Hall and, and what that was like um, and the type of player I was in the locker room there. And, um, you know, my, my leading edge coaches, when they, they didn't know I was even a player in New Jersey, that was good until I came and tried out for leading edge. And at that point, it was like they had already been talking to all these coaches about the other players and it was just a little bit too late. So. Yeah, you even see it now, like, even before the recruiting uh, rules changed that kids would commit like eighth grade and then like senior year, they end up switching and it happened to a bunch of kids. Even you see it now with new recruiting rules, like they were, uh, they commit uh, September 1st and then like two days before their NLI, they switch up where they're going to go. So it's kind of tough to tell. I mean, I, I'm not in that position, but I think you're a complete, completely different person, especially if you're a freshman committing to a, like to a junior committing or even a junior committing to where you want to go to like, being a senior because you kind of want to know what you want to do with your life a little bit more instead of just like going by like, Oh, how good they are. Like, like this sounds cool to go to this college. So it's, it's a really interesting process how that all works. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think it's definitely, 
it's not it's not a perfect science, but you know some of those kids that did get recruited when they were younger, they panned out. But like you said, a lot of kids don't pan out, and a lot of kids switch schools and commit for the wrong reasons when they're young. We have kids at Torrey Pines that some of the things that they do in the recruiting process are, I'm I'm just flabbergasted, and I would never like my dad told me when I was getting recruited that my verbal commitment was a hand and I shook that coach's hand was that was my word was my bond like I was going to that school he wasn't taking the time to invest in me as a player and and talk to me on the phone and build a relationship with me for me to just like pull that all out under the rug my dad just didn't feel like that was the right thing to do so when I told him I was going to commit to Rutgers he said you commit there you're going to Rutgers and you know again I think that's just a character thing and I think that it's hard to read and judge character and really know the true type of person it is when you're a freshman um, and you're just getting to high school and everything's so new to you. And, you know, you can just shoot it from 15 on the run with both hands and you have a little bounce in your step. And that's not what, that's not it. You know, that's not the only thing that matters. Yeah. I think, I think you're completely right about like people say, like people not taking like their word seriously. Like you could, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this probably happened before, but someone commits a verbal commit somewhere just to try and leverage, uh, try and leverage with someone else to say, Oh, I just committed here. Do you really want me? Like uh, I'll take, like, I'll drop my commitment if I go with you. So stuff like that is, it's really just not like ethical in a sense that like, it was good that your dad instilled that too early, like that your, uh, your word is what you're going to do. So that was, that was very good on how uh, you were raised on your part. I appreciate that. And on the flip side, coaches will commit you as a player and then ditch the school. So it's, it's a business, but you have to understand who you're committing to and build that trust enough to know that coach is going to be there, you know, by the time you graduate. And that was something that I didn't realize about the assistant coaching carousel was coach Cromwell, who was a big reason why I committed to Rutgers. He's, he's really the Rutgers goat in my opinion, he's all time leading uh, point scorer there. And he was going to be my, you know, my offense coordinator. And I was so excited to learn from him and, you know, felt like I could kind of take that, you know, position from him through him teaching me um, and kind of leave Rutgers as one of the all-time greats and change the program. And then he just, you know, he left and it was, it was so crushing. Um, and I didn't even think that that was possible at the time because I was so not na- so naive as a player. Have you ever seen the movie Jerry Maguire? Uh, I've not, no. Oh, never mind. Cause there's a, there's a whole scene in there about like, he's like a sports agent and, the guy shakes his hand. He's like, Oh, my head, like my, uh, that's my word. And then he just completely ditches that. So like, it's kind of similar to that. So yeah. uh, kind of moving back a little bit, like talking about how you developed as a player. Um, so you, you grow, you grew up with a lot of brothers and sisters in your house. Um, how did that kind of mold into the player that you were today? So my brother he's two years older than me. We were always competing against each other when we were younger. We both were in love with basketball. I still love basketball to this day, but that was really what we wanted to do. We thought, you know, we were both going to go to the NBA. We used to go to Nets games with my grandfather and, you know, every, he had season tickets. So we'd go, you know, every other week with my grandfather to the games and play, me and my brother would play AU together and do all this stuff. And in that, we were always competing with each other against each other uh, in the backyard and pick up basketball at the courts. Um, and, you know, he was big and, and broad and I'm much skinnier player. So it was always a running joke in our family. If you could combine us together, we'd be like the perfect athlete. But, you know, when we were in the backyard playing, we had a light back there. So we used to be out there till 12, one o'clock at night. And then we, it was on his dirt 
kind of set up. It wasn't, so it wasn't concrete. It was, it was literally dirt and there was roots growing out of the ground. And he, you know, it got to the point where I got good enough to get by him um, and beat him. And I was quicker than him. So he had to figure out how to, you know, make the, make it competitive for himself again. So he used to, whenever I'd go up for layups, he used to grab me out of the air and throw me into the roots to, to hurt me one, to, to make it count. And my dad, I used to say no bullet, no foul. So my brother took that seriously. And so did I, and you know, when I go for the layup, he'd, I'd, he'd come back from behind me after I just did a quick move. I'm like free reign. He's coming up and just throw me into the ground. So I had to figure out ways to kind of go up and then sneak out of it and get past him and just stuff like that and competing with him in the backyard. And then um, from there playing with him, I played up uh, always um, on every team. My dad always made sure that somehow he could bend the rules that I could play with my brother because he always wanted to see that and have me have that experience. That was, that was what really, you know, made it impactful for me um, as far as being an athlete and, you know, having that influence. So going forward, going forward with the basketball thing, how did basketball impact your game in lacrosse? So I think basketball, there was a couple of things. And I, I think the biggest thing it was, was the level of competition on the basketball court was much higher than lacrosse. In, in my opinion, for a couple of reasons, I think the first reasons, the first reason is that there are some sports where there's just a guy, you know, on the other side of you, you can look him in the eyes um, and you're going just back and forth with him. You know, a sport like boxing or UFC, for example, that is so highly competitive because it's you or him in a, in a fight to the, you know, to the death, quote unquote. Um, you know, you're, you're, you could get killed out there and that's not the point, but um, when you're boxing someone like you can get knocked out and it's, you know, it's real. When, in basketball, <clears throat> it's not to that degree, but when there's another player on the other side and I'm matched up with their shooting guard and he has the ball, it's a one-on-one -on -one competition. When I'm going to grab that rebound, I'm boxing him out and it's a one-on-one -on -one competition for that rock. Um, you know, when, it, when we're doing suicides, for example, in the gym and it's, you know, your 10 teammates, it's like, that is real. That's, that's competition that I felt like I, I didn't see in lacrosse as much. So when I got to play lacrosse, I was like, this is, you know, much easier kind of in terms of, of competing. Cause I'm always on, like, there's no, you can't take plays off in basketball. You're going to get exposed. Um, the guys are who are playing, it's a different, you know, just different crop of people altogether. Um, and I felt like we were very competitive, my teammates and I, um, from a very young age in basketball, when we were in sixth grade, we won the championship in our town three years in a row. All of us thought we were going to the NBA and go to play division one basketball. So it was just this constant like thing. And then when I go play lacrosse, I would bring that attitude and that, and that compete and that toughness um, to the lacrosse field. And I felt like that was, that was always an advantage um, that I had. And then on the flip side with skill sets, I think basketball is, is it has a pace to it um, where you're constantly moving. Um, you're constantly have to be aware um, and react and, um, you know, again, just, just utilize, you know, getting open in tight spaces and, you know, the vision on the court. So a lot of those things are things that I brought to the lacrosse field to be the quarterback and, and be someone that was always on the ball and always ready um, for things to happen and then reacting quickly. And that's all things that I, I feel like you can you know see in my game uh, to this day. You ever did you ever think about uh, possibly playing like doing a fifth year after playing at Rutgers like Pat Spencer did, uh, maybe playing a little bit of lacrosse, uh, playing a little bit of basketball? Yes, yeah, so my my dad and I actually talked about that, and I don't think um, I'm not good enough to play in terms of being a starter. Um, Pat Spencer obviously dominated uh, for that Northwestern team. He was one of their captains and 
you know, lead players on the offensive side. I don't think um, I'm as fluid as him on the basketball court, nor was I as touched up. I think he played a lot over the years um, through his four years in the summertime. I know he never picked up a stick in the summer. He was always playing um, pickup hoops. So I thought it was something I would have to really invest a lot of time into uh, as an athlete. That's something that's just the type of person I am. Um, and I felt like if I did that, then it would be taking away from lacrosse. So um, I did think about it. I know I could, I could play um, and, and be a, a competitive player in practice, um, hold, you know, hold the guys accountable um, in practice, competing against them, um, drain shots when I needed to make the right reads. But I didn't think I would be the player that would be you know, starting on game day or anything like that. So I, did, I didn't really uh, want to just be, you know, a bench player and, and doing that another round of division one sport again, like I just did for the last four years. Yeah. I think it's really, um, I don't know what the under, I'd say underrated about how athletic lacrosse players really are and how much they've excelled in other sports, whether it's like in high school or in college that it's not really spoken about. Like you see, there's a bunch of basketball uh, lacrosse players that were in this year's senior class in the NCAA that, thought about playing college football at the highest level and some that actually ended up doing it. Then you think about some of the NFL players like Chris Hogan and Jim Brown who played lacrosse in college and especially Chris, uh, Chris Hogan who played four years of college lacrosse, then decided to go play football a fifth year and then go to the NFL. It just truly shows how athletic you have to be or how athletic lacrosse players really are instead of just being what like the typical lacrosse player is just fast and shifty. It combines every single part of your body, which I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I feel that it's something that's really not shown about in lacrosse. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting because lacrosse is the type of sport where you could be the biggest, fastest, strongest in the world. Um, but if you can't move the ball um, off a quick pull pass when a slide comes to you from the midfield or roll away and protect your stick from the outside, it, it doesn't matter. If you can't read the defense to know, you know, how things are, you know, where the slides are coming from and where, what you need to do and what your job is, like, it just doesn't matter. Um, if you can't clear through off ball and, and pop behind the ball to help your teammate, right? It doesn't matter how big and fast and strong you are where, you know, in football, there are certain positions on the field where if you're not the biggest, fastest and strongest, like you can't even, you're not even in the conversation to be out there to begin with. Um, and, and same with basketball, you know, if, you know, you're not jumping 40 off the deck, right. Then usually you're not even in the conversation depending on what your height is, because you can't get up to block someone's shot. That's Kevin Durant size that's shooting over you. Um, so you're a liability on the defensive side. So it's, it's very much, I think it, the tier of athlete in certain, in the other sports, basketball, football, um, you have to be a certain level of athlete to even be out there in the conversation um, in the, in certain football, in certain positions, right on the line, linebacker. Um, but if you're a receiver, right. And you know how to move, or if you're running back and, and you you're elusive and you have the agility, right. Those are the kind of the skill sets and transfer over to lacrosse. Um, but I'd be curious to see what the pinnacle lacrosse athlete looks like um you know think, think of like a, a Met, metcalf um mm -hmm. like what he would be like on lacrosse field like what is his position is he going to be a, a close defenseman is he going to be an attack like right what is a that D -midi. is he going to be a d midi or a, yeah, a clean, yeah well so i think any football athlete can really pick up a stick and play defensive midfield because there's not much that he needs to understand except the concept of the defense and then his hips are the most important thing for the guy in front of him which if you're playing football, right, that is, if you're a defensive back or you're a linebacker, right, it's all lateral movement and paying attention to the guy in front of you. So there's easy transferable things, but then there's also things I look at like, you know, Kyrie Irving, for example, 
um, or someone like a Steph Curry, how would they transfer to lacrosse? Um, but they're not the size of, uh, you know, Jadavian Clowney. So it's yeah. kind of like, I, I wonder how that, how that's all going to play out um, kind of down the line um, in the sport as it continues to evolve. Yeah. I could like see some players, I could see cornerbacks definitely being D middies point guards. Uh, I, I'm assuming you were probably a point guard in high school. Am I right? Oh, the shooting guard or shooting guard point guards and shooting guards would be the X attack limbs. And then Bill Belichick actually brought up this really like uh uh, concept, like really interesting concept that he he would see like quarterbacks as the goalies because they have to be the smartest guys on the field. They have to know everything. He said that Tom Brady, if he were to play lacrosse, he would be one of the greatest goalies of all time. So that, that's actually really cool to think about, like how like not only the physical game but the mental IQ as well, all like translates into different sports. Totally. So moving on from that, uh, so you decided to go play ball at Rutgers. What was your experience there for your, uh, for your time there? My experience at Rutgers was, I think, uh, you know, I learned a lot um, as, as a person and as a teammate and as a player. I think when I got there, we started uh, my freshman year, we were five and 10. And, you know, by the time we finished, we were a top 10 team in the country. So it was very much an upward trajectory um, for myself personally and, and the team. Um, and I think those trends kind of kind of went hand in hand. Um, there are the couple of guys on our team that I felt like invested a lot um, into the program. And the more that those guys invested, including myself, the more that we saw the, the program improve both, you know, from the, our positions individually. And then, you know, the influences that we were able to have on the younger players and our teammates, because we weren't a program that was getting star studded recruits. We were getting guys that were hungry and, and had something to prove and were coming from non-hopped areas. And that was important for us to be able to get the most out of guys on game day, get the most out of guys over the course of the fall and the winter time when you go in for break and the season and squeeze every little ounce of potential out of each of us for us to be the best possible program that we could be. Um, and I think that, you know, growing through that experience and, and learning what that took to get that out of players and, and what it didn't take to get that out of players, um, what it took for myself um, to maximize my own talents um, and to, to continue to grow as a player we, were all things that I'm, and I'm super grateful for all those experiences. Um, and, you know, to see the program now, I think they're in, they've been in a little bit of a lull just because, you know, my class, my class and, you know, the classes before us, we were, I felt like had that attitude and we're so hungry to change the program. Um, and we're going to do everything at all, all costs to really make an impact and, and leave it better than we found it. I think the younger guys were, you know, a little bit stagnant and kind of riding the wave a little bit, but I think they're, they're kind of coming into their own again, where it's, you know, going to get revamped and, and that energy and that, you know, that fire um, in New Brunswick, which is, you know, it's a tough town. It's a, it's a blue collar area. It's not like, you know, some of these other schools where you know, it's a little bit, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say Soft isn't the right word, but it's just a little bit more patty cake. Um, you know, if you're in, in Rutgers, like you're, you're a Rutgers guy. And if you're from Rutgers, you know that. Um, so it's kind of just getting back to that, that hard-nosed attitude. Um, and I think they'll be able to kind of pick, up, pick it up again. But the, that, that culture that we established is still there. Um, you know, the, the lessons that we, you know, look to instill in those guys are still there. Some of those uh, players that I play with, and Adam Show and Beatties, Kieran Mullins, Ryan Gallagher, guys that, you know, know tasted what it, what it was like to, to really, you know, invest into yourself and into the program and saw success are, uh, are there and, and then want to want to continue that trend. Mm -hmm. uh, who were some of your favorite uh, players to uh, some of your favorite teammates to play with at Rutgers? My all time favorite teammate was Scott Bita. Uh, 
and that's, that's no knock on any of the other teammates I've had, just, just in terms of uh, leadership, in terms of what he expected out of me as a player and a person and what he taught me uh, on the offensive side of the ball, there was, there was things as a, as a quarterback, he came in, I came in my freshman year and, and thought that I was just going to quarterback the offense, um, learned really quickly that I won, did not have the confidence that I, I needed to for a number of reasons. Um, I think that kind of tailored off when I got there and you kind of get punched in the mouth a little bit, some injuries. Um, and then, you know, kind of just, understanding that there's guys that are older than you that have been doing it for longer than you that know the tricks of the trade. Uh, he was a guy that was, um, that was like that when he was a junior. And then I learned a bunch from him that year, working off of him, came back my sophomore year and, and felt like for us to take a next step as a program um, that I needed to take the next step as a quarterback. And he was someone that had so many skills that I needed to learn um, and, and so much IQ that I learned from and that we fed off each other. Um, and it was, it was just, it was amazing to play with him. Um, and then, you know, Christian Mazzone's another guy who I, you know, I played with him at, at Rutgers for four years and, you know, we really became close on the tail, tail end of our career. We were captains together on the offensive side of the ball. Um, he's, been, he's another guy I learned a lot from just in terms of competing and, you know, being uh, at your very best every single time you step on the field, no matter what the circumstances are. Um, and I, you know, I always got so fired up when he would, be in transition and make plays stuff that I, you know, I was never a defensive midfielder. So to see him do things that I wasn't doing and then come down and shoot one on the run and score it. Um, it's just, it's just a, a fire. Um, that's just like letting me that that's amazing to see. And um, was so happy for him to kind of see him grow as a player and, and now see him in his career at the professional level as well. So those are two guys definitely that I was uh, had, a, had a great time playing with. And then one last guy I wish I played with more was Adam Charles Beatty's he tore his ACL twice and had a knee uh, bone in uh, a chip in his knee, our freshman, our true freshman year. So we only played together one year. Um, and that season, our attack line was like third in the nation in scoring. So if we me and him would have played together, I, I don't know what we would have been able to do, uh, what Rutgers would have been like, but it wasn't meant to be. So maybe one day down the line, we'll, uh, we'll be together again. When you brought up Christian Mazzone, I was giggling a little bit because when you just interviewed him, uh, I just listened to it last night and you're like, Christian, how are you? And he goes, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm in the middle of Washington state. <laughs> Dude, but, it's uh, yeah, he's a, uh, he's a great guy though. Yeah, I know. He was, uh, he was, a, he was my first PLL guy I had on my, uh, I had on the podcast. So it's really cool having him on. So we're going to fast forward a little bit. We're going to talk about the PLL. So you first started off at the, at the, uh, on the whip snakes and then you were traded off to the wet redwoods. How did you feel uh, your season went uh, that first season of the PLO went with uh, playing with the redwoods? how did you feel the chemistry was uh, first like that short time you're playing with the whip snakes? I thought it was, it was good. It was definitely, a, a, you know, another experience for me to learn and grow as a player, just coming into a, a team that, you know, I, <clears throat> Nat was very honest with me about his, role um, that he wanted me, the role that he wanted me to fulfill for the team and the expectations he had out of me. And I was honest with him in terms of what I felt like I could do as a player. Um, you know, I think he saw that in camp and, you know, saw it a bit when I was in college and, you know, in, in the Florida launch when I was a, a rookie in the MLL. And I think that they needed more chemistry on the offensive side, more poise, someone to kind of control the, the tempo a little bit. Um, and that's something that, I, you know, I do very well. Um, at a high level and, and just occupy 
the, a lot of the defense's attention um, and, and kind of open up other guys for their success. So going into that team, that was, that was all things that I wanted to do and um, bring to the table. And, you know, I had to learn to play with Kavanaugh, who's, you know, one of the most dynamic players I've ever, play, ever played with, one of the most competitive guys I've ever played with. Um, and he, you know, he's a guy that, you know, I le I've learned a lot from in my short time with him um, in terms of leadership and being clutch and, and coming to play when it matters most. Um, so, you know, a guy like him and then Garnsey kind of coming onto the slate a little bit later on, had to build chemistry with him. You know, all of a sudden I'm playing with two lefties, which is new for me. Excuse me. Just drooled a little bit. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, the uh, two lefties and then uh, the, the midfielders that we had, I think we had to kind of find a little bit more of a balance. And I think that's something that we were looking for this season um, and then kind of going to the next season. So overall, it was it was a great first year and a great first run for me. And it was unfortunate that I wasn't able to, you know, to play this past season, but I'm excited to, to continue to grow um, for the next, you know, six to eight months um, as a player and as a person, as a leader and a teammate and, um, you know, get, get bigger, faster, stronger, become, you know, smarter and more talented and kind of bring that all to the table for those guys um, to be the best team that I can be in, in 2021. So this is a little bit more of a technical question. How would you guys run a uh, two lefty uh, attack, especially if you're at X, how would you, how would, um, what was, uh, what was your set? Like how, what kind of sets would you guys run during the, uh, during the season? So it ended up usually being me and Garnsey behind or Cab behind with me. And then we'd rotate a guy through the crease um, and then kind of pop out um, behind X as we, you know, kind of a three-man rotation like that. And, uh, you know, Cab also likes to operate from that high wing area. I can operate from, operate from the high, high wing area. So it's just kind of, you know, putting us in spots um, and letting the other guy dominate the ball a little bit more. You know, if you have two lefties behind, you know, the one lefty wants to get to the left side. So you can play a little two-man game. You can kind of stand closer to the crease, let him go. Um, there's a lot of things you could do. You know, Cav can drive up that righty side and, and get back to his left hand well. Garnsey's more of a, you know, a, a lefty, a strong lefty. So, you know, want to let him get up that, that left side a little bit more. So it's just finding what, you know, which the tendencies are for guys, what their strengths are, where they want to be um, most of the time, and then playing to that. And I think, you know, for me, it's easy because I can, I can leak out either left or right side and it doesn't matter. So if, if Cab wants to go left, I'll go right for him. If Garnsey wants to go right, I'll leak out left and then pop behind the ball and do whatever. So I think that that's why it, uh, it works well. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like it seems like it, it did work. It did work in the, in the end, but then I think about you had a third lefty on your uh, offense. You had Joe Walters uh, from the midi. So that must've been, do you think it was something that you've never played with before? So you kind of had to sink in with that. No, I think, I think me and Joe were very quick to find chemistry just because he, he is a very high IQ player. He's been, you know, playing the game for, you know, over the professional level for like over 15 years now. And, you know, he just understands what he does well um, and, and lets guys, you know, play to their strengths and puts himself in spots in the field that he knows he's going to be successful in. So, you know, when he has the ball on his stick, I know he's always looking for me off ball. Um, when I have the ball on my stick, I know that he's going to be trying to put himself in the right spots off ball. So, um, you know, it's definitely uh, any, any new team, you're going to grow and, and learn things about each other. But I, I personally feel like I'm uh, very malleable um, in terms of my skill sets and, you know, where I can play on the field. So it's not hard for me to, to adapt to what my teammates' strengths are and then play to whatever, you know, strengths I need to in that moment. Because there, there's not a lot of weaknesses um, for me in terms of being two-handed and, um, you know, just being able to play off ball or on ball. Yeah. So kind of like what I said 
uh, in about who are your favorite teammates at Rutgers. It's going to be kind of a reverse question. Who has been like some of your biggest competitors in the PLL, either a defender or like an entire defense that you've had to go, go against? The easiest answer is the Web Snakes. They're the, the best defense in the league, um, in my opinion. Outside of our defense, I don't play against our defense every week, but defenses that I need to play against, they're the most cohesive unit. All those guys have been off-ball players in their career, and all of them have also been the number one on-ball player in their career. And it makes it for, uh, for really tough on a team, especially with our shot clock and the way that they fill spots behind the ball when you draw doubles. Um, they cover up really well. And then, you know, when you do get it to that, that next guy in the offense, that guy's filling very fast with a great approach angle. Um, so it's, it's just something you need to be very buttoned up and have all six guys in the field working in cohesion. Because if you don't and you only have five guys working in cohesion and one of your players on the offensive side forgets to, you know, shift over or pop behind the ball or, you know, flash cut when it opens up and they have all six working and filling and, and closing gaps, it, it just limits the amount of times that, you know, you're going to be able to create offense because when you are dodging against them, they're hard to get by also. So even when you do draw slides, um, it's, it's more rare. So um, it's definitely a, a defense that I believe um, is it stands in the way of, of me and uh, the Redwoods, um, you know, winning a championship and we have to figure out ways to beat them and, and beat everyone. But, you know, you want to be able to beat the best in, in the game. Um, and they're definitely the, the best defense in the game. Also doesn't hurt that they've been playing with each other since like 2013 or 2014. So it's been a six year of the same defense. Did you ever play Maryland uh, when you were at Rutgers? I, yeah, you must've. Played them every year. Well, it took them to uh, um, triple overtime my junior year. Um, should have, you know, should have won that, should have won that game. Well, could have, would have, should have, but that would have been great. Um, I've never beaten, I'd never beaten Maryland before. My first win versus those guys came on. Um, yeah, last year I got traded to the Whip Snakes. It was, our, I went to the Redwoods. It was our third game of the season and I beat them. And then we lost them two more times in a row. And then we lost them this year. So I'm coming back next year, you know, bigger, faster, stronger, smarter. Um, and a better player, so I, I can put myself in a position to, uh, to help the team in the Redwoods uh, beat them. So my last question for today, uh, to incorporate the name of the podcast in the show, um, here are two questions I, I want to ask to you. So what is one of your lows while playing lacrosse? It could be like a bad pass, a bad shot, like a game you lost or an embarrassing moment on the field. What do you think that might be for you? Does the injuries count? So I got a concussion last year. That was uh, one of the most difficult moments in my career just because of how it impacted me mentally, um, kind of post-concussion. Uh, and that was, I got cross-check in the head versus the chrome, um, and, and that took me out of that game. And that was difficult to watch because, you know, I, I felt like I needed to be out there to help us win. win. And ultimately, we ended up winning anyway, which is you know, very relieving um, on my shoulders just because I, you know, I knew that I was an important part of the team. But, um, you know, when you can't help and, and you're, you're useless, it, it's a tough position to be in. So um, to see us win that game was amazing. And then, but kind of post after that, um, it, was, it was hard for me. So that was definitely one of the, uh, the lowest of my career. And the counterpart to that question, uh, what has been one of your highs while playing in your career? I think one of the best moments in my career has been, you know, we played Penn State my sophomore year and that was uh, – I think one of the defining moments of Rutgers across just kind of taking that next step as a program was, you know, winning big 10 games. And that was an important big 10 game to win um, for our, for us to try to position ourselves for the, for the postseason. 
and uh, we beat them 16-14, uh, and I had uh, at eight points that game, and it was senior night, um, and, you know, just uh, I felt like I was really cementing myself as the type of player that I was trying to become, um, and, and that it kind of coincided with the program that Rutgers was trying to become as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jules, for coming on the Low to High podcast. I really appreciate it. I think this could be a really good uh, second second season, uh, season uh, opener. So really appreciate it. We're gonna, I'm going to definitely be watching you during the uh, PLL season next year, and I look ho- hope you have a great rest of your 2020 and a good 2021. I appreciate that, my, my man. Thank you for uh, having me on. My pleasure. See ya.